Warriors, Tansei Sego Anibuju, Quay Nin Deluisi Pampometer, and I'm the host of this show, The Warrior Life. This podcast is a show about living the warrior life, a lifestyle that focuses on decolonizing our minds, bodies, and spirits while at the same time revitalizing our cultures, traditions, and practices. It's also about asserting, living, and defending our sovereignty all over Turtle Island. And defending our sovereignty isn't just about protecting our peoples and our nations, it's also about protecting the lands, waters, plants, and animals as well. That's why this podcast shares the voices of all different kinds of native warriors so we can learn more about different cultural beliefs about what it means to be a warrior. We've heard from native men, women, and youth, from First Nations, Métis, and Inuit peoples who all serve their nations as warriors in very different roles. Some are land defenders on the ground, whereas others are determined advocates in the legal or political arena. Some are artists, communicators, authors, and educators. What I value most about my discussions with these warriors is that we all come from different nations, with different worldviews, and there's a lot to be learned from all of these different teachings. What I see that we share in common is that we are all guardians of our specific territories. And since we are dependent on the ecosystems within our territories, we all share a common obligation to protect the lands, waters, and all living things. I think this ongoing discussion is really important for us, but also for our children. That's why I've started a new podcast just for kids called the Warrior Kids Podcast that is currently uploaded every Wednesday morning. It's a celebration of everything Indigenous and kid-sized conversations about what it means to be a warrior for our peoples and the planet. You can learn more about the Warrior Kids podcast on the website, www.warriorkidspodcast.com. I also have a new book coming out called Warrior Life, Indigenous Resistance and Resurgence by Fernwood Publishing. It's a collection of my best blogs, newspaper op-eds, and magazine articles on the many issues facing First Nations. You can pre-order this book using the code WARRIORLIFE for a 15% discount. The link to order the book is also posted on my website, and books should be ready to ship in September. But let's get back to today's podcast. I feel really fortunate to have had the opportunity to talk to Chief Joe Alphonse from the Chilcotin Nation. In addition to being chief of his community, he also currently serves as the tribal chairman of the Chilcotin National Government, which is an association of autonomous member bands or First Nations, and it was founded by the chiefs of all the Chilcotin communities. He joined me to talk about their recent court victory against Tosico Mines and the importance of never giving up to the fight to defend our lands, no matter how much pressure governments and industry put on us. He also ends with an inspiring message to young warriors. So thank you, Chief Alphonse, for coming on to my Warrior Life podcast. I really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, I know the issues that your nation has been facing are huge, and you've just had a recent victory, but before we get into the background, I'm wondering if you would like to introduce yourself. Thank you. I'm uh, Chief Joe Alphonse. I'm from Tlatinko community. I'm also the uh, Tlatinko tribal chair. Um, I've held that 
I've been chief now going on 12 years. And um, prior to that, I was uh, executive director for Tlaxcalti National Government for nine years. And nine years prior to that, I started in the fishery background and I've worked um, just about every position in the tribal council, always in governance. And a um, big part of my career is fighting for Aboriginal right and title. And that was a goal of mine, which we also um, managed to succeed. So, so thank you. I really appreciate it because in some of the significant and leading court cases in this country, your nation has been behind that. And I'm wondering if you can just tell us a little bit about your nation. We're located in central British Columbia in the interior. We're Tsaitkotin. We're the most southern Diné group in British Columbia. Our nation was very a warlike nation. We fought and our, our role within Diné was in the Diné nations was to move south and obtain land. So in a modern context, we continue to do that and push that envelope. We have a long history of fighting for our lands. Um, in British Columbia, the, you know, in 1864, we had what we call the Chilcotin War. Road builders tried to build through our territory and our our ancestors said that there was a fee they had to pay to come through, but the road builders refused to to pay that fee and meet the terms of the Tsaikotin. And when they took our women as um, for entertainment, our our nation declared war and decided to eradicate all white people from our territories. So after over a year or so, they um, they proposed to do. Um, peace talks with the war the war chiefs, and under a flag of truce, our warriors went into camp where they were uh, jumped, shackled, brought to Quenelle and um, British Columbia, and they were executed as murderers. And um, our last comment from our head war chief, Latsasain, was we meant war, not murder. So that's the driving force behind the Chilcotin. You know, we, we, we want to push the envelope. You know, we want a better life. We don't want to be sitting here hoping, crossing our fingers that maybe this year ISC or INAC or however you want to phrase them are going to get it right. You know, we, we don't need somebody, you know, we need the resources in a modern world to live and to govern, but we want those resources and we want to develop our own programs. I often say, um, so Coden, Tsaikotin problems require Tsaikotin solutions. We don't need anybody else holding our hand. We have already laws that are in place that were there for thousands of years that we know that work. We, we would love to be in an opera, in a situation to bring that back and to, to reintroduce those in, in a modern context and and within our communities, Tsaikotin communities. And, I can only speak for the Tsaikotin is that, you know, whenever we bring policies that were that have always been, those are always our strongest and our people just, you know, they, they just love that. They, that's what we're um, about. So we, my mandate is to continue and to, to, to bring our values to any project or anything. And if those values aren't met, then, then we have to make a stand and, and fight and stuff. So it's not, projects at any cost it's projects we want that are responsible to the environment responsible and respectful to us as a nation we 
we went to the Supreme Court of Canada. That's that's an eighty million dollar ticket to get there. So we want a return on our our investment. So if you're going to operate in Chilcotin lands, Chilcotin lands, then you're going to have to work with us in partnerships on every level. We didn't go to the Supreme Court of Canada to separate from Canada. We believe in Canada, and when you know that court decision came down, a lot of people were angry. You guys don't like Canada. You don't know. No, if we wanted to separate from Canada, we wouldn't have honored you guys as our highest court in this country, the Supreme Court of Canada. You know, we would have spent the eighty million dollars uh, flying Party Quebecois over here and sharing notes with us. I tell people so. We're just trying to fit our fit into this country and fit into this country in a way that's acceptable to us because what we've been living in and the conditions that we've been in is, is not acceptable to anyone when when you have communities that that are almost uh, third world conditions. So so that's what this is about. Sounds like your nation has a really strong governing history and a history of defending your lands and defending your sovereignty, even this really strong with the war chiefs and making sure that you're always defending your people and your lands. And that carries through until today. Um, Lots of people in society think Native peoples gave up fighting a long time ago, but in fact, every day that we're trying to survive and assert our rights and assert our sovereignty is a continuation of that struggle. And We've always seen your nation at the head of that struggle in a variety of formats, you know, in the political arena, in your home territory, but also in the courts. And I'm wondering, can you talk a little bit about that court case from the Supreme Court of Canada in 2014? I mean, it was pretty significant because up until that time, everyone had talked about the Delgamuk case, you know, the one brought by the Gitsan and Wet'suwet'en over their territories. Uh, But then along comes your court case, and it's a very specific declaration of title and what what that actually means. It's actually exclusive use and benefit and decision-making, a real recognition of that power. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about why you brought that case. Um, I think we, everyone had their own reasons for bringing it. Like I you know, as a young, in my early 20s, I, I said, you know, I come from a hereditary line of families. My grandfather was the last hereditary chief on my mom's side of my family. So I was raised up under under those rules. My teaching started at the, when I was about eight years old. I, my dad's side of the family was, the, you know, they were the warriors. You know, I, I set a goal that, you know, I wanted to win the Aboriginal title. And uh, I wanted to prove everyone wrong. You know, we other members of my nation may have different views, whatever, but our elders that stepped forward in the court, you know, they carried with them, you know, the burden of these stories without any release. A lot of those people just wanted to tell the story. And, you know, the majority of them did that, and they were our true warriors, you know, and some of them almost immediately after testifying in BC Supreme Court, like my uncle Patrick, you know, he talked about how nationhood came to be. Almost immediately afterwards, he left us, he left his world and stuff. And a lot of them felt by doing that. So we're ever, ever grateful for them, the knowledge that they had sharing that, you know, but it's, it's recognition. It's, you know, yes, individual families, you're going to do everything in your power to, 
you create a better situation for your families. Well, our family is a Tsaikotin family, and we don't like the situation we're in under these rules. So we want to change that. And we didn't have a lot of options, and our nation never signed a treaty or anything like that. So we wanted to go forward and, and push that envelope. And there was a lot of nervousness, a lot of hesitation about uh, asking for title. We were told, don't ask for title. Even right up until the, the, the night before, just about every Aboriginal lawyer across Canada and every Aboriginal organization told us, don't ask, withdraw. You know, you guys have no open winning title. And, you know, it was if we were under a lot of pressure and a lot of our leadership were under a lot of stress. But we came to the conclusion that we may not win title, but we're going to go forward anyway, because this is what we do. Well, we had six ward chiefs that were executed protecting that land. You know, in today's day and age, they don't, they, they don't execute Indians anymore. So what's the worst that's going to come of this? You know, we know the truth. We know we own that land. We know that's our territory. The question is, is Canada finally ready to, to see us as a people, to finally recognize? And as long as we're fighting the right cause and we're doing it for the right reasons, it doesn't matter if we lose. If we lose a Seikotin, we will go home and we will re-strategize and we will come back again and again and again until we're satisfied with the answer that we want. You know, it was a stressful time for First Nations everywhere. And, you know, when we said we were going ahead, you know, I have to acknowledge those lawyers and those nations that stood in the courtroom that, you know, they, they knew we weren't going to back down. So they changed their tune, come up with a really strong arguments and stuff like that. And, you know, it's it's a nervous day, you know, it's a, you spend 20 years preparing and you only have one day in court, in Supreme Court of Canada. But you could feel our ancestors there and in that courtroom and, and we knew it was going to turn out all right. And uh, it did. And you could feel the energy in Canada. You can feel the energy that people, you know, we had fought with Stephen Harper and the Conservative Party for years. And he proved to be, you know, he was a big part of our win. He created the environment to allow Supreme Court of Canada to say this is not right to treat a, a group of, of uh, Indigenous people in this way. Things have to change. It wasn't for his racist policies on us. We may never have won. So the environment was there. And, you know, we needed business to be the same way to, our, to, to us. And we had to seek a mind that, didn't acknowledge we don't give money to Indians attitude and so they were a big part of our win you could feel that and you can feel you know Canadians wanting a change so it was a turning point for sure and I'm fortunate that we we won title we've proven that we were here and um, you know now it's to to work out the deal for the rest of our rest of our territories and encourage all First Nations everywhere this is a in negotiations with governments, we've never had um, any leverage. We do now. And it's not just that leverage. It's not just for Tsaikotin. This leverage is for all First Nations, whether you're treaty or not treaty. And doesn't matter what department, if you're battling child and family issues or whatever, use that and take as much ownership back. That's what this is about. And it's about creating a better life for Indigenous people. 
all across Canada and around the world. When that case came out, there were a lot of celebrating First Nations. I can't even imagine what kind of stress it was for you and your nation to know, is this the right decision? But ultimately, whatever you do in defense of your peoples and your lands and your sovereignty, that's always the right decision. And the fact that you went ahead despite all the warnings and despite the pressure and worry, and then you won. I'm really curious to know what changed for your nation once you heard that decision. Well, the Aboriginal, the the tight lands that we have, um, we own that. Like there's no interest from anyone else. That's lock, stock and barrel. That's not even enough for question. We'll do as we please and we'll, we'll implement our own laws however we feel fit. The rest of the territories that we're mainly dealing with now, whatever, and that win it was just basically um, an acknowledgement. There's no money attached to that. So, you know, we were working in Canada and British Columbia on, on a whole variety of other uh, incentives. And, you know, and it's government has been, um, the first six months, I would say, um, didn't know how to deal with us. You know, it took them probably six months to strategize on how they're going to meet with us. We asked that there be an exoneration of our war chiefs so that they were tried as murderers. Those those weren't murder cases, you know. And, and we've gone to, you know, Parliament Hill, you know, right in their government. We're the first nation to walk on the floor of Parliament. And after all these years, you know, we're the first nation to walk in there. So we did that and told Justin Trudeau that we've came and we've honoured his, uh, his government house now. He has to come to cover Tilcoden lands and he has to honour our government house, which is our on the land. We told them when, you know, when they, in the process of reconciliation, you know, when they took our head work chief from our territory to Quinnell, they put him on a black horse, black stallion, and they brought him to Quinnell where they tried him and executed him. That black horse, after he was executed, um, it escaped from Quinnell and it swam two rivers to come home. It came back to his family, came back to its village, and when it came back, riderless. That represent emptiness and, and a betrayal. You want reconciliation with Chilcotin, you're going to have to come back. And we're going to get you on that black horse. We're going to put you on that black horse and we're going to re-enter our village and our nation and with you on that black horse representing that this time around we're bringing reconciliation with us. So it was a very powerful moment and whether we were in the parliament building or on tight lands and those events, you could feel our ancestors there. So it was a very spiritual journey and proud moment for, for our nation, for sure. That's really important because this isn't just about court case. It's about all of the ways in which pre-Confederation and post-Confederation governments dealt with our nations and and your nations and how they treated your war chiefs and, and your people over time. So you've got this huge success at the Supreme Court of Canada in 2014. And now just recently, the Supreme Court of Canada has refused to hear an appeal on another case. Can you tell us what this other case was about? Government had to figure out how to deal with us. And one of the things which became a benefit to all First Nations across Canada was that as a way to kind of press the power of the Chilcotin because of our title case, having that at our table is that 
they've started sharing more resources with First Nations right across the country. And we feel it's a big part of why Canada and British Columbia acknowledge and adopted UNDRIP, though wasn't for a case, um, most likely that wouldn't have happened. So it's, it's a little slow. Um, we'd want things to move a little quicker as a nation, but also understand, you know, maybe those of us that work in the field are ready to move on real as fast as we can. But a lot of our members are still suffering from addictions and things like that. We have to be thoughtful of them and make sure that we're doing everything we can to increase you know, the quality of life for all of them before we assume too much. We don't want to fail. All, all eyes are on us, and not just here in Canada, but internationally. Uh, wherever we go, we hear from First Nations, we from New Zealand, visiting with the Maoris down there and stuff like So this is an international scale, so it's, it's huge. The recent court case, if you're referring to the Tosico, no, that was a huge win. That, as I mentioned earlier, Tosico, you know, lawyers often want to say, cite, um, you know, in order to win Aboriginal title, these are the, these are the things that you're going to need. Well, they don't mention a lot of things and some of the things that, because it's going to be a 20-year fight, your nation has to be consistent for 20 years and you're going to have leadership changes and all of that, but your position has to always be the same. A big part of the court case win was the environment. The SECO for 30 years has denied that we have Aboriginal rights, let alone title, and they refused to to work. They um, they took a 70s-style approach, you know, uh, old cowboy approach to trying to push through projects. So it's there's definitely... A, a lot of tales I can tell about that fight over the years. And, and you know, uh, as we court after our last environmental appeal process that was awarded in our favour, uh, the SECO had wanted to go to the Supreme Court of Canada to argue uh, that, that that process was flawed and all of that. So that, that got thrown out. So there's not really a lot of other options for this company to move forward on that. They can now quit um, trying to oxygen to a dead horse. So. Another big win, and hopefully that'll be it. But knowing this company, they'll keep looking at other ways to, to try to come. Maybe the Pesico uh, proposal for a third time, who knows? But, you know, the province has within its power to acknowledge the community of Yonasaitin and Hani have declared that tribal park. Just, you know, put an end to it and uh, show some leadership and, and, and acknowledge that as tribal park and, and bury this fight forever. For all of the listeners who aren't familiar, Tosico is a company that wanted to have a mine in your territory. Is that right? Yeah, it would have been the largest copper and gold mine in, in North America. The open pit from one rim to the other would have been uh, three kilometers uh, across. We as Seychotin, we're, we're in the interior, so five months of the year is named after fish and uh, We've always been uh, a big salmoning uh, nation, and we've always relied very heavily on salmon. And the word Tlaxcotin means the river people. So, you know, a, a mine of that size was going to jeopardize our spawning grounds and our, our sockeye run, the Chilco Lake sockeye run. And Chilco Lake sockeye run is the last large, most consistent sockeye run on the, on the Fraser River. So... We were not willing to run that risk, and Tosico would have also destroyed a, a lake up there, uh, Peloton B, we call it, Fish Lake. Um, 
considered one of the top 10 fishing lakes in the province of British Columbia. Huge trout lake. Um, but more importantly to us, it was also sacred grounds. It was where, because it was situated in high mountain area, that we considered that to be where all our medicine people would go to get their vision, to do their vision quests. And that's our church. You know, we're not going to allow anybody to come in and destroy our church. You know, I would often tell people, you know, it's uh, no different than us going to Rome and trying to convince uh, them to turn the Vatican into a casino hall for the benefit of uh, of uh, jobs and, and the economy. So we don't do that. We respect other people's beliefs, respect ours. With this Supreme Court of Canada refusing to hear the appeal of Tsiko Mine, does this pretty much just put an end to the project now on your territory? We hope so. <laughs> we hope so. It's uh, 30 years of fighting one company, and it's been a long journey, and I'm not sure exactly what else. I think the company wants to have a buyout of some sort, and uh, some ways I feel get the feeling that you know they want the province to pull the pin on this project and uh, so that they could at least maybe sue the province. Instead, there's more than one way to make money at mining. And this company, Tseco, you know, they're, they're not actually a mining company. They're a mine developer. So if they ever got that project to the point where um, it was viable to mine, then their plan was always to sell it. So, you know, as long as they can prove that there's always the smallest hope of uh, the possibility of the mine getting built, then, then they can remain on the, uh, the stock market and, and continue to bring in investor dollars and stuff like that. So it's definitely a, a world we're not too familiar with, one that we definitely want to see come to an end. Although this is Tosico Mine trying to go to the Supreme Court of Canada and force its project, there's a role here for the province of British Columbia. I mean, at any point in time, the province of British Columbia or the federal government could have stepped in with regards to defending your nation's land rights and governing rights and resource rights over your own territory. But they didn't, did they? No, they haven't. We've, uh, you know, under the Heritage Act, they can easily step in. You know, if there's significant uh, archaeological finds in the area, they have more than enough evidence to to declare that uh, uh, a heritage uh, park or whatever, but that also prevents any company interest to lay a lawsuit against them. So we've, we've laid that out for them, but there's a lack of leadership from the province that want, want to carry that through. So to me, that tells me, you know, there's wanting to see that, that project come to fruition and bring in tax dollars. But our response is that's not acceptable to us. You know, maybe there are other projects. Instead of focusing in on this, let's focus on other other parts of our nation that and other projects that we could support. But when in terms of dealing with the SECO, 30 years, they tried starving us out to try to force us to to accept their terms. But starve us out if you want. We're not going to change our position. We're stubborn not to stand up for what we feel is right. And ultimately, it worked. The one thing that I think governments and corporations don't understand is that we don't exist on a project-by-project basis. We're in this for the long haul. We can outlast and outweigh any of the kind of pressure that they put on us if what it is that we're fighting for is important enough for us. And things like our lands and sacred grounds and resources 
clearly that was worth holding out for. And, and you've succeeded now in two of these major cases. I know BC recently adopted Bill 43, which is meant to bring all of British Columbia's laws into compliance with the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, UNDRIP. And now that that law is there, do you find that that has made any difference in the province's dealings with your nation on any outstanding projects? I don't see the effects of that yet. They did uh, pass that. And, you know, they use our case a lot in, in developing that, but they've never invited the Chilcotin to that table the day before they were going to implement UNDRIP, whatever, and they asked us to review that with them, and I refused. I said, well, what's the use of having a, a sneak peek of that if we, we don't have the ability to change or to uh, in put safe values and whatnot into that. So, And we haven't been a part of that, so we're not here to quickly endorse. I think you know, implementing laws right across all of governance, is, that's going to be a long process. And, and uh, we definitely want to be a part of it. But up until now, we've been excluded. You know, they deal with other First Nation organizations, but our team is the team that went to the Supreme Court of Canada our team that knows all the intricacies and what it took to win, not these other organizations. You know, your court case, it's a confirmation of your title, but more than that, it's also the fact that you have title over that area, which you always knew and always had. It's not just about the land, it's also about your right to govern and make your own laws and enforce your own laws. So with or without Bill 43 and UNDRIP, you have already established, you have all of these powers and jurisdictions as your own nation, and you must see a lot of a power in that. And I'm presuming that you have previously and currently continued to enact your own laws over your own territory. We're slowly putting a lot of that stuff into laws and rolling out and making sure that you know we're meeting with our membership and that they're having you know adequate levels of input into that a lot of those laws come from our legends and our stories and stuff like that too so some of those families are that continue to practice that you know it's already out there but we face so much as a people and as indigenous people in this world and you know we've residential school, the Chilcotin War, you know, um, Spanish flu and things like that. Our people have um, really suffered and they've really struggled. And so it's important that we bring the health of our people back to a state where they feel proud. And unfortunately, you know, the sad part of being First Nation, you know, you live in third world conditions. It's not going to be the healthiest. So why it's important that we bring back traditional way of governance and stuff and before contact all our chiefs were women were all our chiefs so when i see nations today where they have female leadership i know that socially they're probably a lot more advanced than we are we have a lot of work to do you know the chilcotin war which gave us pride and and all of that also the other side of that coin was that it um it forced our people not to trust government and when abusers come come around, they, they once they realize that, then you know they took advantage of that and really 
put a lot of harm in, into our community. So we have to work through that first and foremost and get back to a healthy place and get our women back to, you know, their traditional roles and, you know, and putting into context, you know, we have a lot of our people still incarcerated and stuff like that and work with them to try to get them back on the right path. But, you know, it's challenging and really taxing on an individual when you live right in the community and you you have to deal with a lot of these issues. But these are issues that do we have to tackle and keep accumulating for 150 years. So we want to bring back our traditional ways so we can deal a lot of that stuff uh, as quickly as we can. We're always so quick to spend a lot of financial dollars on bringing doctors into our into our communities, but what about traditional healers? And let's bring them in and help them assist and stuff like that. So, yeah, we have our challenges, but um, we're moving um, sometimes not as fast as we want. Genocide has unraveled across this country. In the East, you're talking 500 years of violent colonization and dispossession and trauma on our peoples. And as you go further West, I mean, you're still dealing with hundreds of years of trauma on our people from so many things, some of which still continue today. If you look at foster care, violence against our women, if you look at over-incarceration, ill health, all of these things, we're still trying to deal with that at the same time as defending our lands and our sovereignty and our nations and our laws. There's a lot of young people wanting to know what, what's the best way that they can support their nations and defend their lands. And do you have any advice for them? Um, know who you are. Be proud of who you are. Be proud that you're First Nation, you know, uh, Believe in yourself to travel through Canada. I hear a lot of times nations saying, well, we know we couldn't beat that big industry, so we just signed a business deal. Uh, that's a poor excuse. If you really believe that's going to bring harm to your people and your environment, you know, if there's, there's no price that's enough to allow that to happen. Believe in yourself, first and foremost, respect yourself. Practice your custom as much as you can. Incorporate that into your daily way of being. Um, move forward in in a way that's respectful and you know ne- never never compromise. We said we're going to win the Supreme Court title case, and we'll keep that. If it's going to take us uh, 20 years or 120 years, you know, we're, that was our goal. Uh, and know what your answers are, and just keep moving. You know, we. We never thought we were special, but every day we woke up and we, we maintain our position over a long period of time and keep it simple, keep it traditional and, and keep moving forward. And, you know, like I often tell, you know, our, you know, our warriors one day were, um, they, they were our most educated people. A warrior before contact with somebody that had, you know, they had to know multiple languages. They had to understand that there was structure within the war party. They had to have knowledge of weaponry and making of weaponry. They had to have knowledge of vegetations, not only in our territory, but all the territories around us and how to survive off of that land. They were also very um, religious, spiritual, because at any moment in time, they were willing to give up you know, their life for the protection of our, our children, our elders, our women, our land our way of being. Today, when I hear somebody saying they're a warrior, you know, young people and, you know, they're standing outside a pub 
maybe I was too when at that age, but I won't get into that. <laughs> I mean, we're a warrior, we'll fight anybody. You know, that's not a warrior. You know, that's a slave to alcohol and drugs. The warriors that we have today often are, are our women. They're the ones, you know, are, are trained. The training grounds are still there. Our weapons aren't tomahawks or bows and arrows. It's pen and paper. And we still fight to protect our women, our children, our elders, our land, our environment. But it's done on paper. It's done in courtrooms. It's done at negotiating rooms. So our, our, the faces of our warriors have changed. The training grounds, our warriors are now classrooms and at uh, high schools and universities and stuff. So the face of our warriors have changed. Let's define what that word term warrior means and, and pursue that and, you know, be proud of who you are. You know, try to try to walk in the, as soft as you can in your environment. I really appreciate that message because this podcast, Warrior Life, really is about talking about what it means to be a warrior outside of all of the stereotypes. It's about all of the things that you said. Oftentimes we don't think about the education that goes into being a warrior. What all the knowledge you have to know to be able to be a warrior. And I think that's a really important message, uh, especially for our young people, some of whom may be struggling or not, not sure what it means or the important role, the effort that you have to put into being a warrior. So I think there's a lot of people who are going to get a lot out of what it was that you said. And I've always looked at the history of your nation and what's happened to your people, but also what your people have done. And to see that you, you never give up and you just keep going and you keep fighting, that's just such an inspiration in a place where colonization and genocide wears people down over years and years and years and generations and generations. And the fact that you're still keeping up the fight is an inspiration, not just to the rest of us, but also the battles that you fight also benefit the rest of us in terms of all of your victories. So thank you so much for your leadership, for all of the roles of your warrior chiefs and your women, all of the matriarchs, all of the children, everybody who has a role in this, past, present, and future. Thank you for your contributions to defending our lands and our sovereignty in a good way for the benefit of all of our people. Thank you for taking the time to interview, do this interview. and. Um, Wish you and everyone else well and marching forward. Thanks to all of you Warrior Life podcast listeners for tuning into my show. I'll make sure to post a link to the Tilkotan Nation government and some of their recent press releases about their court victory against Tosico Mines. If you like this episode, please consider supporting my podcast by subscribing, liking, and sharing each episode, especially with other warriors and allied social justice activists. You can access this podcast, my new Warrior Kids podcast, and pre-order my new... <clears throat> you can access this podcast, my new Warrior Kids podcast, my blogs, my YouTube channel, and all of my publications on my website at www.pampometer.com. And don't forget the discount code for my new book, Warrior. <clears throat> and don't forget the discount code for my new book, Warrior Life, is. <clears throat> and don't forget the discount code for my new book coming out is Warrior Life. Till next time, keep living a warrior life. Walalia. We'll